Hey, stay tuned listeners. I hope you and your loved ones are staying healthy and safe during this incredibly trying time. To help address many of the pressing questions around the coronavirus, we're making Cafe Insider, the weekly podcast that I co-host with Ann Milgram, available for free to everyone. As many of you know, every Tuesday, Ann and I break down the politically charged legal news making the headlines. The podcast is part of the Cafe Insider subscription, and I'm grateful to every single one of our members. You help support our work. As we sometimes do with stories of great importance, we have taken down the paywall for this episode, so everyone can be tuned in to what's happening. For this special episode, Anne and I are lucky to be joined by our friend Juliet Kayem, who helps us make sense of the latest developments. Juliet served as President Obama's Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security. No stranger to crisis management, she played a critical role in overseeing the response to both the H1N1 pandemic and the BP oil spill. What follows is a sample of our conversation. If you want to hear our full discussion for free, go to cafe.com slash preet and sign up to receive an email with a link to the episode. That's cafe.com slash preet. And if you already receive emails from Cafe, then check your inbox. It should be there or arrive shortly. Hey, Anne, how are you? Hey, Preet. How's it going? Are you still sheltering in an undisclosed location? <laughs> yes. Yes. And if you hear noise in the background, it's my five-year-old doing movement class on Zoom. Yeah, maybe There's we a lot should of singing. that. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is much better. I have to say that's much better than... Wait, who's that? I know. That's I a voice. Oh, I know. so why don't we Sorry. explain... I jumped we're, the gun. But yoga no, that's all right. Yoga and five-year-old is good news. No, this is so, an urgent time. So, we're so happy so, uh, to have you. Last week, we had our friend and colleague, Lisa Monaco, on, who's very expert in a lot of things. And we thought that was very edifying and informative. So this week, we have another fabulous, amazing, smart, informative person, uh, my former college classmate and friend, Juliet Kayem. Welcome, Juliet. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, I could go on and on about your background and biography. You were, among other things, Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security under President Obama. You were Homeland Security Advisor to Governor Deval Patrick in Massachusetts. And you have been doing a great service on television and in writing, explaining all these things to us. And so we're going to call on your services again for this hour. So thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Can I ask you, Juliet, before we get to some of the breaking news that occurred this morning, how different is this from anything you had dealt with before? So, I mean, it, it has attributes of two other key disasters that I worked. And I just, you know, not to, I'm always very clear what I am and what I'm not. So I'm, I'm not a first responder. I'm not a doctor. I manage public safety teams and, you know, serve as a incident commander for crises, I'm a civilian, so but it does have attributes of two big disasters that I had worked. Um, the first is the H1N1, which was the in the first days of the Obama administration, you know, and I had been on transition for Homeland Security. You know, we're briefed on every scary thing: this terrorist, that cyber attack, this this you know global warming or climate change issue. Um, and then, of course, the first thing we ever dealt with, the first real disaster crisis we ever dealt with was H1N1, had the same questions that are raised now. It wasn't a global pandemic, which is, you know, how much do you focus on border controls versus mitigation? You know, just getting a community prepared. How much can you control? How many resources do you need to surge? And people sort of forget, you know, there's a lot of focus on what went wrong in H1N1, which I'm willing to admit you know, I live in a world in which you're starting with like everything is bad. And if it can be less bad, then it's a good day. So, but you know, a lot went right. We had a focus on 
a vaccination. We had a distribution of the vaccination in the fastest time ever for a national distribution of a vaccination. We had high politics, low politics. We had border issues with Mexico. And we were able to maintain some stability for at least the border states during that period. And I think, you know, that sort of taught me sort of, you know, the need to communicate what the path forward is, the need to communicate about the sacrifices that community members will need to make. People forget that we had closed a number of school districts in Texas closed down for periods of time. So, so the tools are familiar for what a pandemic or what a public health crisis looks like. This is bigger. The other, and I just was reminded of it yesterday, is um, when the president set up the National Incident Command for the BP oil spill, he, he brought in a team of people that the White House knew that was Thad Allen as the head to deal with it. It was ugly. And, and you know, all I say is no one talks about the BP oil spill anymore. So that means it was a success, right? During it, it never looks like a success. The fact that it's not viewed as Obama's legacy to me means that we served him well. And I was brought in as the civilian uh, deputy, essentially, uh, managing. And, and I was reminded yesterday because the, the military deputy, that we had two deputies to the National Incident Commander, taught my virtual class because I teach still. And, uh, and we were just talking about the length of, of that. I mean, it was over 100 days that that oil was spilling. It did not look like there was a clear path forward. It only impacted five states, but it felt like it was a national crisis. And just how do you stabilize yourself and stabilize a community for that period of time. So it has familiar attributes, but nothing like this. Um, this is a slow roll crisis. It, it was coming for several weeks or months before it hit. We, we lost that time. And now we're sort of in catch up mode or catching up mode, I should say, to try to stabilize our capacity so that then we can go from the tidal wave that we anticipate and that places, I think, like New York, that where the tidal wave has hit or is beginning to hit and begin to get to what I call, you know, the sort of whack-a-mole stage of our response, which is, you know, this, this doesn't get totally cured until the vaccine. Um, we could talk about how this unfolds. Julia, can, then- I, can I ask a question? Why is New York such a hot spot? I read yesterday, I think it's about to be, or maybe it already is, the sixth largest density of cases in the world right now after countries. And so, you know, is there a particular reason? Is it the fact that the city has millions of people in such a small space? Like, or is this just something that could happen in any place? It just happened to have happened in New York first. So I I think a couple of things. So New York, just obviously given its density and the capacity to have transmission relatively quickly in urban streets, airports, and elsewhere is just, so the fact it's in a city is not surprising. And we've seen that elsewhere. The fact it was New York City is a, I think a combination of, you know, sort of its global nexus with the fact that the other countries that were, and, and their citizens that were bringing it over were also late in detecting this. So you, you guys just sort of got, New York City just sort of got hit with everyone being about three weeks too late and not controlling uh, borders or uh, controlling airport flights. I am a fan of controlling borders and airport flights at the right time, and that would have been in January. But no one, no one was in the headspace to do that then. So th- there are a lot of tools that the administration has to use. One that a lot of people are learning about in detail for the first time is the Defense Production Act, and I've seen you talk about it, and I want to get into that in some detail. So the president invoked it, but didn't actually implement it. There's some confusion about whether he wanted to or didn't want to. Yesterday at a press conference, the president basically said, 
yeah, I don't really want to use it because I don't want to nationalize business. And literally, just as we were beginning to tape this morning, I thought we were going to have a long discussion about how the president was just not going to implement versus just invoking, but not implement the Defense Production Act. And then we get news that Peter Gaynor, the head of FEMA, has said the administration is going to use the Defense Production Act to do, among other things, cause 500 million masks to be made and 60,000 test kits. Why is the Defense Production Act important? How does it work? And what do you make of this news? So this is a surprising news. It's good news, you know, obviously for several, and it's, it's too late, right? So, I mean, in other words, the production should have shifted two months ago when we saw what was happening and we knew that we would have deficiencies. So I'm glad that the president invoked it. It was obvious that he would have to invoke it and we need lots of stuff. But can we, can we just pause there for a second so people understand? When he invokes it, that, that's not actually doing anything, right? That's just merely saying that we stand ready to use it. One of our other colleagues, Ellie Honig, said, I thought in a, in a telling way on, on Twitter, to invoke the, the Defense Production Act is like if there's a fire in your kitchen, you say, I invoke a fire extinguisher. It doesn't actually yeah. put out the fire. It right? is, yeah, exactly. So basically, the Defense Production Act has two pieces to it. So the first is invoking by the president. So I, I describe that as you're plugging in the microwave. Um, the second is you press start. And, and, and the president never pressed start until this morning. I will wait to determine, you know, whether these numbers are satisfactory. But that people like me who knew the tools that a president had have been talking about the Defense Production Act for over a month now because manufacturing does not shift easily and because we have in America, in, in the first time in American history, a 50-state disaster. Like, get your head around it. Like, we've, nev- we've had crises that impact everyone, like 9-11 in particular, but we've never had 50 states trying to manage and utilize their public health and public safety apparatus simultaneously against the same threat. So what so you would have done, didn't, yes. why I, think it was, I, I think it was, I mean, I think there's lots of reasons why people are doing, I mean, we, we've read articles that the, you know, Chamber of Commerce was pushing against it, you know, that they didn't want to be commanded in that way. The president, you know, mentioned he didn't want it to be like Venezuela. Um, he didn't want us to be like Venezuela, like, you know, uh, suggesting that this was a takeover of the private sector. All this is, all the Defense Production Act is, is it creates a market for the private sector so that they will and commands them to prioritize what they're going to make and guarantees a purchaser. That right, the United then, States government. Exactly, it's basically right, saying, then, yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Please do it. And instead of it being about charity. A voluntary, because, again, right. Yeah, yes. It was like, oh, thank you, 3M, for making 50,000 masks. Like, I'm not criticizing 3M. I think it's great. We, you know, who needs it? Where does it go? How is it getting into the supply chain? How are we prioritizing so that Cuomo isn't fighting with a governor in California? Or, I mean, this is logistics. This is what makes or breaks a mission, but it's also not hard. It's not new. It's not like we're trying to make a vaccine. Well, I was thinking a little bit about the sort of, you know, the origins of it in the Korean War and going back to separate legislation that had gone into effect in World War II. And just, it's not the first time we've seen mass scale production of needed goods. It's just generally been in the context of military military goods. Although I was also thinking a little bit about like the Works Progress Administration. Like there have been other ways in which you know, using industry has both benefited people's lives and jobs and also 
the government's needs in times of war. And obviously this is a different type of war, but it feels to me very much akin to warfare and that there's certain things you just need and there's no other way to get it. And it's not like this was inconceivable. I mean, I think that I'm sure you all felt it during other parts of the Trump administration when it came to uh, legal issues. But, you know, the idea that they come to the podium and they they say, oh my God, no, no one could have imagined this, or this is really hard. Actually, lots of people managed, imagined it, as Lisa Monaco said last week on your show. And it's basic logistics. It's actually, I mean, of all the things that we have to do, this is the part that we're actually, we have been kind of good at if we could just commandeer or get a president to focus. And, you know, one final thing on the on the um, Production Act, it was envisioned just for this purpose. So I hear people say, oh, it's a Korean statute and that's for war and this is different. Actually, it's been amended to cover DHS and Homeland Security needs. We envisioned the very, very scenario in which production would need to be prioritized by the federal government for a homeland security threat. So I don't want to hear that like this is unimaginable. It totally was imaginable that we would. Not need only that, I think. That. Yeah, I, I think we should we should remind folks that there has been reporting over the last three or four days that not only was it imaginable um, from the perspective of a pandemic being you know always a global potential threat, but with respect to this particular pandemic. Intelligence agencies were briefing the White House and letting members in the administration know that this was going to be a big problem, very specifically about this. Yeah. You know, when the book is written, right? <laughs> and there will be a book written. That's my hopeful side. There will be a book written. Someone will write this book. You know, this, the beginning will begin in China. But, you know, part two will be called My conversation with Juliet and Anne continues. The weekly Cafe Insider podcast is usually just for members of the Cafe Insider community, but this week you can head to cafe.com slash preet and sign up to receive a link to listen to the full episode for free. And if you'd like to become a member and get a two-week free trial, you can do so at cafe.com slash insider. And again, if you already receive emails from Cafe, you should have one soon in your inbox. To all our insiders, thank you for continuing to support our work.